0: Find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. So again, let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable at ease. And as you listen, remember that uh, these teachings are really meant for your own reflection. So you can listen and see what rings true and what doesn't, which is fine, and what's useful and what's not. And that gives you a chance to let go of a lot of stuff and keep what's of value to you. Over the course of this summer, we're going back through a series of one of the most central teachings in the Buddhist tradition, which describe our true nature, or Buddha nature, the awakened heart. And sometimes they're described as the innate perfections of our being, We've talked about the innate generosity, and innate integrity, and innate compassion, so forth. Sometimes they're also described as those seeds of our true nature, of our Buddha nature, that can be cultivated, and awakened, and nourished in our being. So tonight, the next, the fourth of these qualities, of the awakened heart, or of your own true nature, is that of energy, aliveness, vigor. O nobly born, the Buddhist texts begin, remember who you really are. Remember the capacities of awakening that are within you. What is awakened energy, awakened vitality, awakened effort in spiritual life? In certain traditional texts from the Anguttara and Majjhima Nikaya when someone asks the Buddha what is awakened effort or energy, he says the awakened energy of life allows us to avoid those things which are unskillful and to overcome them and to develop and nourish those which are skillful and brings us to liberation. So the, the, the energy of the spiritual path is both a combination of aliveness and also an understanding of this life. The ability in ourselves to release or let go of or relinquish greed, prejudice, hatred, aversion, possessiveness, jealousy, aggression, racism, exploitation, to know those for what they are, as the suffering that they are in this human life, as the seeds of suffering, and to let them go as they arise. And to be able to let them go means to notice what arises in our experience with wakefulness, with stillness, with enough, wise attention to say, yes, this I can release, and to realize in ourselves that we can release things, that it is part of our human capacity, both to hold things to us and to let them go. And in releasing those moment by moment, to nourish or awaken or connect with those skillful qualities of heart and mind, compassion, balance, loving-kindness, flexibility, ease, mindfulness, wisdom, so that the awakened energy of spiritual life and the wise effort is to work with our own heart and mind. The Buddha says, no one can harm you as much as your own mind, untrained, and no one can bless your life as much as your own wise mind and heart, well-trained, not even the most loving mother, or father. He goes on to say, as the farmer channels water to his land, as the fletcher whittles his arrows, as the carpenter turns the wood, so the wise woman or man learns to master her own mind and heart. The quality of awakened energy is to use what presents itself in this life. Most of the time you don't have a lot of choice about that, do you? You're going down the street and something presents itself. To use whatever presents itself to awaken, to listen to it with that understanding that we have the capacity both to hold on and bring into the heart, nourish, or to release, to let go, to abandon. A story I told about a year ago and I thought of it because getting ready in the next month to go back to the men's retreats in Mendocino which are done in part with young men and sometimes with uh, young men who are coming out of the um, gangs in the inner cities or gone through very difficult times in the juvenile justice system and one of these evenings in this retreat that is ritual and storytelling and drumming and initiation, there came to be a very heated discussion about guns, and who had guns and who didn't and who had been violent in their life and why and the room became very charged and uh, racially very charged as well between different groups of people who were in the room, men, Latino and Asian-American and (coughs) Middle Eastern and European-American and there was a there was a a lot of um, fear and in the midst of the heat of this discussion, one man stood up, middle-aged man, and he said, "When I was young, I was really inspired to go to Israel. Um, I thought the starting of the new country—it was in the you know, 1960s, I guess—was was something I wanted to participate in, and I went to go and be there, and wanted to be a citizen, but to join." Um, in the nation of Israel, you also have to agree to go in the army. And it had not been what I imagined, but I agreed to do so. And they trained me in different kinds of weapons and how to shoot automatic weapons and mortars and all of these things for the defense of the country. He said, and it's, uh, if you don't know what it's like to hold a weapon in your hand and to shoot, um, It's not something, he looked around at this man, the men that you really want to learn in this life. He said, anyway, after I'd gone through all my training, I was assigned to a post um, in the north of Israel um, to defend the country against those who would come and shoot or harm the citizens. And there I was with a few other soldiers and our weapons. And one day I was sitting there afraid of the, Enemies, the Palestinians, the Arabs around, whatever ideas I had holding my gun. And I looked out across the hillside from our post and all of a sudden a herd of goats came around the hillside and there was a a little young girl, a ten-year-old Palestinian girl, who was the goat herd. She didn't know I was sitting there and I watched her and after a time when the goats were eating on the hillside, all of a sudden she put out her arms and she began to dance just for herself in the sunlight on that hillside. And I looked at her dancing and I said, this is a Palestinian that I'm supposed to be defending the country against. And I began to weep, he said, and I realized that I cannot shoot her or her brothers or her parents or anyone else. And I put my gun down and I resigned from the army. And I left, to not return. And he said, that was a moment that changed my life. And I tell the story in part because of the great suffering that's happening now in the Middle East, but also because it reminds us of what it means to learn anew in our life. We will each have situations that come regularly to us, difficulties, And this aliveness, this noble aliveness of the heart is to begin to listen and learn anew for those voices of wisdom, for what is skillful and compassionate and free that wants to awaken in us. Usually we get confused about effort and energy and think that it has to be about getting to a goal, accomplishing something. But the truth is, in this life which is so mysterious, we don't really know where we're going. So it's pretty hard to set a goal. I mean, yes, there are certain goals that are useful to set, but in spiritual life, we don't even know where we are very well in most cases, not to speak of where we're going. Zen Master Dogen says, When you sit in a boat out in the ocean, the ocean looks round and nothing else. But the ocean is neither circular and round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see in that moment. All things are like this. So one day the Buddha was wandering in India with his monks, as the story is told. And he came upon a man who was a yogi who was standing as his ascetic practice on one leg to purify his karma. And the Buddha walked by and the man said, Oh, you are a Buddha, blessed one, may I speak to you? Is this a wise way to practice? There are all these kinds of ascetic practices and purifications people have done for thousands of years in India. And the Buddha said, For what purpose do you do this practice? And he said, I'm doing it to purify my karma. And the Buddha said, Well, how much karma have you purified? <laughs> and the man said, Alas, I do not know. Then the Buddha said, Well, how much more do you have to purify? He said, Alas, blessed one, I do not know that. Well, he said, Well, how much karma do you have? <laughs> the man said, This too I do not know. And the Buddha said, Put your foot down. <laughs> And stand here on the earth and I will teach you how to truly purify the heart, which is not standing on one leg, but rather standing where you are and receiving the experiences of life with wisdom. The perfection of effort, of energy, of liveness is not about ambition, but it's the perfection of our capacity to be present where we are. It is the energy to be alive and full, mindful it's called, but mindful really means a sacred presence, to be awake to life in this moment. Attention. There was a little cartoon in The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago that shows a fellow seated at a table in a restaurant looking over at the waiter who he's obviously just called over with the food and wine in front of him, And he said, no, there's nothing wrong with the food. I just needed a little attention. (laughs) Ninety percent of life, they say, is just showing up. And certainly in spiritual life, in marriage, in child rearing, in work, in meditation. It's the willingness to be here with what is, to bow to this too, and say, yes, I can be present for this as well what is beautiful and what is difficult to take all of it. Usually we think we can't do it. The small sense of self, that fearful part, the body of fear says, life is too much. You know, or if I really give myself, if I let myself go in this life, I'll make a fool of myself. Zen Master Dogen put it this way, he said, a Zen master's life is one continuous mistake, (laughs) willingness to be a fool. Or Winston Churchill who wrote, I've eaten many of my words and found them very nurturing. (laughs) (laughs) To bring effort and energy to our spiritual life means a willingness to show up moment by moment what is present in a wholehearted way one can live at a low flame most people do says Diane Ackerman for some life is an exercise in moderation where the best China is saved for special occasions but given something like death what does it matter if one looks foolish now and then or tries too hard or cares too deeply what really matters So, awakened aliveness is that rediscovery of our capacity to bring a full and whole heart to what we do. Carl Jung says, The attainment of wholeness requires you to stake your whole being. Nothing less will do. There can be no easier conditions, no substitutes, no compromise. Or similarly, Carlos Castaneda speaks of the sacred warrior and says only as a warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. A warrior does not complain or regret about anything. To them all of life is a challenge and challenges are simply endless opportunities to be present, to be met. The difference between a sacred warrior and an ordinary person is that an ordinary person takes everything as a blessing or a curse whereas for a warrior it is all a challenge. Think of it for a moment if you let yourself reflect on what things in your life you've done in a half-hearted way, how many things that's been, and what that feels like. And then let yourself reflect or remember those times when you give in your full heart to whatever it was, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter how it comes out. but those things where you gave yourself fully and how that feels. Usually we think of our aliveness, our energy, our love for that matter, as kind of a battery, giving of ourselves and that if we give too much, then it will run down. You know, we'll lose it. But the reality is, as we open, the more that we give, the more comes through. The more fully we can be present, the more that channel of aliveness opens in us. Everything that is not given is lost, says one Indian sage. A little story. There were once in the Andes, there were two warring tribes. The mountain people invaded the lowlanders, and as part of their plundering, they kidnapped a baby of one of the lowlander families and took the infant with them back into the mountains. The lowlanders didn't know how to climb the mountains. They didn't know the trails or where to find the mountain people or how to track them. Even so, they sent out their best party of fighting men to climb the mountain and bring the baby home. The men tried first one method of climbing, and then another, and one trail after another, and after days of struggle, they had climbed only a thousand feet in these vast mountains. Feeling helpless, they decided the cause was lost and prepared to return to the village below. As they were packing their gear for the descent, they saw the baby's mother walking toward them. She was coming down the mountain that they hadn't figured out how to climb. Then they saw she had the baby strapped to her back. How could she have done that? One man greeted her and said, We couldn't climb this mountain. How could you do it when we the strongest and most able men in the village were unable? She shrugged her shoulders and said, It wasn't your baby. (laughs) And yet they are all our children. When we look deeply, they are all our babies. And there is in us a love of giving ourselves to this life. So the wise or awakened energy is really that of courage, to move beyond the body of fear and to give ourselves, even in spite of insecurity. In fact, in the midst of insecurity, as Helen, says, Helen Keller says, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. In the midst of insecurity, to continue and say, yes, I will be present in this moment, for this person, this circumstance, as fully and wisely as I can." Now often in spiritual life, one hears stories about initiation, and they're connected with this capacity to give oneself fully. When I arrived at my teacher Ajahn Chah's monastery in the forest of Thailand, As a monk, as newly ordained monk, I'd been already practicing there for some time as a lay person coming and going. Now I was coming in my robes. And he looked at me and he said, Well, you've come. Yes, I said. He said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. That was his first thing that he said. He didn't say, like, welcome, come and enjoy the monastery. He said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. And we sat up all night, at least one night a week, sometimes twice a a week. We sat in the forest all night in the dark, and in the charnel grounds chanting, we would take turns being alone as they bring the bodies in and do the funeral celebrations, and then we would sit with the burning uh, cremations all night long. Um, We would go out in the mountains and the caves where there were still quite a lot of wild animals. And that was part of the training. But he said, that's not going to be the real suffering. He said, that's just the outer form. The real suffering is your own mind, how it's supposed to be, and what you want, and what you don't want. And he said, if you can be with that, you will really learn something of value. When in Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the teacher of Milarepa, named Marpa, went to India to see his guru, Tilopa. Tilopa said he wouldn't give him the teachings, And Marpa begged for the teachings and Tilopa said, I need gold, I need a lot of gold. I want a huge bag of gold, gold dust, gold powder. So Marpa had to go and do all these things for years to get this gold to come and buy the teachings of awakening. And when he finally did, some years later, after tremendous effort, he got back and he bowed to Tilopa. And he said, I'm here, O master, for the teachings. And here's all the gold that I've collected. Tilopa said, yes. You have collected this gold. And he took the bag and he turned it upside down and let all the gold dust blow away in the wind. When you go into a Zen monastery, traditionally you sit Tungario, which means you have to go sit outside the gates for a few days, even in the snow. And they don't let you in. They just kind of look over the gates, (laughs) say, yep, another one sitting out there. And you just sit, and you sit, and kind of show them that you have the energy and the aliveness to really practice. And after a day or two, they say, Yep, she's still sitting out there, or he's still out there. wonder what's going to happen, and wait. And maybe two or three or four days later, they open the gates, they say, Ah, you've come. Come in, and they speak to you. My teacher, Deepa Ma, is one of the great yogis of our lineage and tradition, as well as, a, besides being a Buddhist saint and yogi, she was also a mother and grandmother, a very wonderful teacher. She went into the monastery after she had gotten very, very sick, um, and that followed the death of two of her three children. She was in such despair and such grief, and so ill that she had to crawl up the steps of the monastery, but someone said, this is a place, if you do this practice, where you can turn your grief and your sorrow into awakening. It is the way that you can heal yourself. And she was so determined to do that that she crawled up the steps of the monastery, weeping as she did. In the Lakota tradition, the Native American tradition, a person who is grieving is considered most wakan, most holy. There is a sense that when someone is struck by the sudden lightning of loss, An opening to that which is beyond this world can occur. This state of holiness is respected and has its uses. Grieving people's prayers are considered especially strong and it is proper to ask them for help and to pray for you. So there's a kind of courage that's asked if we would truly awaken our own Buddha nature in the fullest way a willingness to enter life, or to practice with what's given to you, to truly practice with it. Anybody in this room not have much suffering? Raise your hand. Just want to check this out, see if I'm still on the earth human plane here. So you all have some opportunity, it seems like, to work with your difficulties, to work with the awakening of compassion for yourself and for all others to work with the quality of freedom of heart in the midst of those difficulties. And this is the wise effort or energy. I have this letter from someone who wrote back to the Insight Prison Project. Dear Spirit Rock Meditation counselor, whoever they're writing to, this person writes, Thank you so much for sending the tapes of talks by Ajahn Sumedho and Christina Feldman and Joseph Goldstein, they've been so helpful to me over these months and to those in the cells around me. I listen to the teachings over and over and try to really live them. And even though it's very hard to express the way I feel, it seems important to tell you, when I came to prison, I felt like I had been wounded like an eagle with a broken wing and put in a cage. Not only a broken wing, but a broken heart. The suffering I felt was very close to death. I know that the pain was intense and maybe hard for you even to comprehend how deep it was. If you could have seen me and looked in these eyes, you would have seen the suffering in this heart. But I'm so glad that because of these teachings, that part of my life now feels over. And when I step back and look today, I see that I'm getting stronger. And it's because of following the teachings that I listened to over, and over again, and of others offering themselves to help me." He goes on to say thank you. In the end, in spiritual practice, there is always a descent as well as an ascent. There's always a dark night. There's always periods of loss and difficulty. It is true for us all. Karlfried Durkheim, the Zen teacher, writes The person who is truly on the way when they fall upon hard times in the world will not as a consequence turn to those friends who offer them refuge and comfort and encourage their old self to survive. Rather they will seek out those who faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves, so that they may endure the difficulties and pass courageously through them. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. What we give our love to makes us grow what we give ourselves to fully, to act with a full heart and bring our gifts to life. Sometimes I get a little concerned on Monday night, teachings especially, which is a, in, a, in a way an introduction to the practices and the teachings of the Buddha Dharma, that I make it a little too easy sounding, too accessible, and that I don't somehow remind people of how demanding it is. Not because you have to seek out any more difficulty, you have enough. But the willingness to take what's difficult and to really honor that as our place of compassion, our place of awakening, our place of liberation, the perfection of the energy of our life. So there's a depth of heart that's needed, a willingness to be present even in difficulty, that's a steadiness of our energy. It's really like turning our compass in the direction of compassion, in the direction of freedom, moment by moment. And yet it also takes balance, the balance like riding a bicycle, the balance that everyone knows from the famous image of the lute string, where one monk came to the Buddha and said, "I'm." St- struggling so hard in my spiritual life. And the Buddha said, Were you not a musician before you came in the monastery? He said, I was indeed. And do you not remember how you tuned your instrument? Yes, blessed one, the strings had to be not too tight and not too loose. And in the same way, the Buddha said, Thus, you should tune your heart in practice, not too tight not too loose, but to find that balance that allows you to be present, moment after moment, mindful, awake. It's not so easy in these times. It is so busy, Western life that we live, the calendars, the palm pilots, the highways, the commitments and schedules and demands. The balance that we seek needs periods of stillness, times of meditation, walking in the woods, walking by the ocean, going on retreat, breathing in and out. We need periods of rest, every one of us. And wise effort, the wise energy of the heart knows both when to stay present for the difficulties and when it's time for stillness. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with the divine. But only she who sees takes off her shoes. Poem from Elizabeth Barrett Browning. You have to take your shoes off to see. And when you go in the temples in Japan and Tibet and Thailand, Sometimes you find these tiny little doors. It's really strange. Why would they make such a little door in the temple? Maybe people were very small in the old days. And then you realize that they make the door so small so that you have to bow your head quite low to go into the holy place, into the temple. Arthur Schnabel, who is a grand and great pianist, says, The notes I handle no better than many other pianists. But the pauses between the notes, ah, that's where the art resides. So we need the space to meet what are called the impostors of triumph and loss and discover that they're just part of the game. We need the space of meditation, of breathing, walking in nature. I used to think in the beginning that what mattered was just a fierce kind of effort. And certainly there is a call for great effort, but it's not that kind of struggle. One Zen master received a new student at the monastery who came very ardent and said, I'm really willing to practice, give my all to it. How long will it take me to attain enlightenment? The master said, 10 years. The young man was shocked. What if I really give myself to it? I will struggle as much as, you know, work as hard as you say. How long then? He said, well, I made a mistake. In your case, it will be 20 years. (laughs) Oh, no, no, why did you say that? Why why are you making it longer? I mean, how long, really, how long will it take? Oh, I'm sorry, 30 years in your case, (laughs) come to think of it. So it's not that kind of effort. It is the courage to bow to what is and say, yes, this too, and to meet this life. Say, I can be present for this moment and this and this, for this being, for this sorrow, for this beauty. Make the mind open like the sky and the heart, the great heart of compassion. At its deepest level, in our own true nature, this quality of aliveness, energy, vitality, is inherent. It is part of every cell of our being, of who we are, and it's completely trustworthy. For what moves the stars, moves through us. And there are ways so many times in this culture when we've been cut off and closed down and Afraid or ashamed or shut down, you know, too many multiple-choice exams, right? And too many hours in front of a screen, maybe, in some of our lives. It's true. And something in us wants to dance and move and be full and alive. There is a gift that is given to you, and only you. You are the unique carrier of that gift. For there's no one else that has ever been born like you on this earth. Don't betray yourself, but learn to bring forth what is in you, moment by moment. This from Pablo Casal, the answer to helplessness is not so very complicated. Anyone can do something for peace without having to jump into politics. Each one of us has inside a basic decency and goodness. If we listen to it and act on it and give ourselves to it, we are giving a great deal of what the world needs most of all. It's not complicated, but it takes your courage. It takes courage for a person to listen to their own goodness and then act upon it. Do we dare be ourselves? This is the question that counts. There is an aliveness, a passion, a healthy passion, a vitality that wants to move through us, to dance to offer ourselves, to create, and it's as natural as the seasons, as natural as the summer that we're experiencing these bright sunny days and the things that grow in the seasons. And when we listen and find a rhythm and balance in our life, energy and aliveness Turn into joy, connectedness. Enter each moment. Your lamp was lit from another lamp. All that's asked is gratitude for that. Feel the energy that moves through you as the energy of life itself. And ask yourself, what do I want to do with this gift of aliveness? It's not about struggle in the end. Kind of Taoist phrase. The men and women of the Tao have no mind to fight the Tao. They do not, by their own contriving, try to help the Tao along. It's really a kind of listening in this relationship, in this creative act, in this political time, in this community. What can I bring forth that's beautiful, clear, simple, wise, that really expresses that Buddha nature, that one who knows inside? A story that I like, true story of several, probably, I guess a century and more ago, took place at Oxford University during exam time. All the undergraduates at Oxford were required to take a course on religion and the Bible. And the final essay exam, which was given in one of the great halls with the proctors and the exam papers put out, was to write an essay on the miracle of Christ turning water into wine. So, Hundreds of students gathered, they were given their exam papers and this was written on the board as their essay question, and they all sat there working away, trying to explain their understanding of miracles in the Bible, except for one student, a young poet, Lord Byron by name, who sat there just reflecting quietly until the exam was over. Actually, there were a couple more minutes left, and the proctor kept coming around and saying, the exam is almost over. Aren't you going to write anything? We have to collect the papers. Finally, he picked up a pen and wrote, the water met its master and blushed one line and turned it in. There is a grace to wise effort. It's not the effort and energy of struggle, but there's a kind of graciousness in it, and we know this. It's the graciousness of presence, the graciousness of caring, the grace that comes with a fearless heart to say, yes, this too can be born in this life. The grace of respect. It's mysterious and its beautiful and yet, I promise you, it is within you as much as anyone. And your spiritual life simply asks that you listen for it. I claim, says Gandhi, to be no more than an average person with less than average ability. And yet I have not the shadow of a doubt that any man or woman can achieve what I have if he or she would make the same effort and cultivate the same hope and faith. From the Tao, the mark of a tolerant woman is freedom from her own ideas. Tolerant like the sky, all pervading like sunlight from the mountain, supple like a tree in the wind. She has no destination in view, and thus she makes use of anything that life happens to bring her way. Nothing is impossible for her because she has let go. She can greet each day and care for the people's welfare as a mother cares for her child. Let's sit for a moment. to commit yourself to that which is noble, compassion, freedom, and a graciousness of heart, moment by moment, to bring that beauty and love that is noble within you to everything you touch. just a moment we'll do a chant and go out into the summer evening the beautiful thing about spiritual practice is that nobody can tell you exactly how to do it <coughs> nobody can tell us we can hear words or read beautiful teachings but in the end it really is like braille it's like feeling our own way finding that way which opens our own heart. I thank you for your kind attention, for your generosity in coming. Let us do a very simple chant before we go. In India, when you greet a person, put your hands together and bow to them with the greeting Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. Or maybe a better translation is, I see you. I see who you really are. The root of the word namaste is the Sanskrit word namo, which means to bow to or honor. So I'd like us to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can sense what you would bow to in yourself, in those you love, in the places in the world that ask for your prayers, whatever you would offer your bow to. And then we'll go out into the evening. Na, wo, na, and a gracious heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening.